right there. It's fine. All right, good morning, friends. Let's um, go ahead and get started today. Let's begin, um, if you'll turn in your hymnals to page 804, 804, and we'll start by praying Psalm 51. Um, our topic this morning is um, the, um, the seventh commandment and the commandment against adultery, and it seems appropriate to pray a psalm that David wrote after he was convicted of his sin with Bathsheba, um, and in response to his, he violated different, a number of commands, but certainly violated the seventh command um, in his sin with, with her, as well as others. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Wash, me, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, for there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Indeed, Father, we come to this topic this morning, um, the commandment against adultery, um, acknowledging um, that we are all violators of this commandment in different ways, um, that we are um, sinners before you, Father, um, sexual sinners even, and we stand in need of mercy and grace from you as we consider our sin and our lives. Um, Father, today, help us to be wise as we think about this commandment and what it requires from us and um, the, the freedom and the goodness of life that it offers when we obey um, the seventh commandment and the grace and mercy that is offered to us in Jesus Christ for all the ways that we fall short. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. I've got some handouts this morning. Let's see, Jeremy, you want to 
help with these, maybe James, give you guys each a stack. If you put any extras back on the sound booth, that would be great for any latecomers. All right, so friends, this morning we continue our series through the Ten Commandments, and um, uh, we'll be looking today at the Seventh Commandment. Um, before we jump to the Seventh Commandment, though, I want to just do a little bit of a wrap-up from what I taught last week in terms of the Sixth Commandment. Um, uh, I didn't have time to cover this, but I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, you know, we, we talked about the way in which anger um, is probably the manner or the sin in which we all most, many of us at least, most struggle with in relationship to the Sixth Commandment, that anger is actually um, murder, according to our Lord Jesus, um, that it is um, a way in which we exercise violence against others and um, um, to intimidate them or to punish them or to keep them in line. Um, all of us, I think, on some level struggle um, with anger. And so I wanted us to spend a minute before we jump into the Seventh Commandment talking about what do we do um, with the anger that is in our hearts. And hopefully this week you've maybe done some careful um, self-reflection and evaluation even about your own lives and your own patterns of anger. We I talked about this some at the end of the class last week, um, what it means to just kind of be self-reflective in terms of, of how we express our anger, um, you know, and, and the damage that that potentially is doing to people around us. So, so here's some just things to think about as you think about what it means to, um, as our confession says, we are called to repent of particular sins particularly, right? We're not just called to a general repentance towards God and away from our sin, but to, to name our particular sins and then to turn away from them in, in particular ways, in specific ways. So, so how can we turn away from anger and, and grow in repentance? So I, I talk about, I think one of the steps often that we need to think about when we come to anger is to think about our own stories and our own histories and the ways um, that we have received the sinful anger of others. Um, usually um, our anger is something that we, um, we learned from someone. Um, we learned um, from a parent perhaps or from a grandparent or um, you know, from, from a teacher, from a boss, um, from someone. Some, all of us are not only sinners ourselves when it comes to anger, um, but we also um, have been sinned against um, when it comes to anger. And, and, and I think for, you know, different ones of us, that story will be different. I just think just being curious about our stories is a good place to start when we think about having the kind of self-knowledge that John Calvin talks about, um, knowing ourselves and knowing God and the way that those things are connected to one another. One of the things that we need to know and name and understand and think about is how have we been sinned against? Um, what are the ways that we learned um, unhealthy and sinful patterns of anger in our own lives? Um, and what did that look like? How do those things impact us? Um, so that's the first step, I would say, or at least one of the first steps. Um, another step um, is to pay attention to how we are angry. Um, what is it that makes us angry, right? Um, how do we actually express that anger? Um, what is the harm our anger is causing others? Um, anger is really like most sins, um, anger is all, you know, like there's some there's something that is not the way you want it to be, right? There's some insecurity, there's some fear, um, there's some desire um, that's not being met um, that, is, that is driving the temptation for anger in your heart. And just being reflective about that, thinking about that. What is it I'm actually trying to accomplish, right, when I'm angry? Um, what is it that is not going the way I want it to go that I'm trying now to like force it to happen? 
And that's essentially what anger is, right? You're, you're taking something in your own hands and trying to control it, trying to, 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 you know, to make someone do what you want them to do or to punish someone um, because of how they've hurt you. And just, just thinking about that pattern, paying attention to our own patterns of anger. Um, and by the way, as I'm talking through this, much of this will also be relevant as we think about um, the seventh commandment and the ways that we sin sexually. I'm going <laughs> to say these are the kinds of things that are helpful for you to do, whatever the pattern of sin in your life that you're trying to address is. Really thinking deeply about your own story, about your own heart, about your desires, um, these kinds of things. Um, I think something, the third step I have here is considering the possible connection between shame and anger in your life. I think there's often just something that I've noticed um, in pastoral ministry, um, and certainly you read books, people talk about this connection as well. Um, there's often a deep connection between shame and anger, um, that things that we are ashamed of are often the things that make us the most angry and that we lash out against people for. Um, sometimes when they do things that we're ashamed of in ourselves that we know that we do, and we, we haven't confessed those sins to God, then we, we want to punish people that, you know, sort of remind us of the things that we're, the sin that we're caught in. And I, I think thinking about that connection between shame and anger is a really important thing. Um, I'm often at the root of, of uncontrolled anger is unaddressed shame, um, shame that has not been addressed in our lives, um, that we're not, we're not sure what to do with, you know? Um, and and what, do you, what do you need to do with shame? What do you need to do with sin like this? You need to ask for help from someone else, I'm going to say. Um, especially, I think, someone who has some authority over you or someone that you submit to in some way. A pastor, a counselor, a parent. Um, I think really beginning to talk about these things, naming these patterns of sin are so crucial. The Bible talks about this all the time. Of course, it was, you know, in the story of Nathan and his sin was only when he began to, have his sin named by someone else that came outside of himself, that David was capable of repentance and writing Psalm 51, right? He was incapable of doing that on his own. Um, often it's in dialogue with others, opening ourselves up to others, especially people who have some, who have some agency in our life, have some authority that, that we're intentionally putting ourselves under, at least in this particular scenario, this particular thing. Um, that we can really begin to address some of the heart issues that develop from our sin. Um, and with their help, we can then begin to name our stories, name our patterns of anger, name the things that we're ashamed of potentially that, that drive our anger, and then pursue that particular repentance that we're called to. And then I just have the last step. I mean, this is really the first, last, second, third, fifth, fourth. Um, be the beloved. I think that really is something that changes us. Um, abiding in union with Jesus, um, dwelling with the one who whose anger was never unrighteous, um, who was never out of control, who never sought to um, punish people um, for the sake of making them pay and suffer, that kind of thing. Um, abiding with him um, as he offers himself to us in word, sacrament, and prayer um, daily and then week by week in the Lord's Day. Um, being with him, being near him um, is the way that we can, um, we can be fully known and seen by God in the midst of our sin and know that our sins are forgiven. And ultimately, I think this is how we, the only really way to be freed from anger is to realize the mercy that God has shown us, right? The mercy that God has given to us and gives to us continually each day. Um, and it's that receiving that mercy for ourselves that then allows us to extend um, that mercy to others. Um, clearly, Jesus talks about this in the Gospels, right? The connection between knowing 
the forgiveness we've received from God and then being set free to extend that forgiveness um, to others. That's the only way um, that we're able to do that. Um, and this is something to think about as you think about anger in your life. Any thoughts about that? Any questions before we jump into the seventh commandment? All right, very good. And again, I would say that what I've just laid out is the kind of pattern that I would encourage you to take whatever particular sin you might be thinking about in your life right now or seeking to repent of and grow in. And hopefully, friends, there is a particular sin in your life that you're conscious of, that you're intentionally trying to put to death and turn away from. Um, That is the life of sanctification, I think, um, is learning to name our particular sins before God and before others and then pursuing repentance particularly of those sins. Um, that's, that's the way we grow in holiness. That's the way we grow to be more like Jesus. All right, so let's talk some about the seventh commandment. Um, the seventh commandment, of course, appears in both um, uh, um, expressions of the Ten Commandments um, in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, and it has the same uh, form um, in both. Um, you shall not commit adultery is the English translation. And the Hebrew is actually just two words. It's the negative, um, low, and then just the word for adultery. Um, uh, just two words. Don't commit adultery. Um, so, so it's a very straightforward and simple command in some sense. And even that word adultery, we can think about, um, you know, has a pretty specific meaning. And, and essentially what adultery means is don't violate the covenant of marriage is what the commandment is about. Don't violate the covenant of marriage. And this is something I think that's really important to think about. This is going to be my first point in a minute. Um, We really, when we come to the seventh commandment, need to think about it through the lens of marriage because that's how um, the Bible describes this commandment. Um, I think sometimes the seventh commandment can just be sort of understood like generically, you know, don't um, commit sexual immorality, right? Um, uh, That kind of thing. But we need to, which certainly the seventh commandment encompasses all forms of sexual immorality, um, certainly, and we'll see that in a minute with the catechism questions, but, but the seventh commandment has particularly to do with marriage um, in a way that, you know, the seventh or the sixth commandment just says don't kill, right? It's a very, you know, don't murder. It's a very broad commandment in that way. The seventh commandment has a very narrow focus. It, it, it has to do explicitly, at least first and foremost, to do with um, don't essentially don't break the marriage covenant. Um, if you're in the covenant, don't break it. If you're not in a covenant marriage, don't you know, call someone else to break it. Um, don't commit adultery is, um, is, is the commandment. I think we need to start there. And I actually wish, this is you know, a little bit of a, I don't know, critique, or I wish that the catechism um, questions actually started with marriage. They start more generally and then they eventually get to marriage as well. Um, so I, I, but I, feel, I really feel like it's important for us to say up front that the seventh commandment has to do specifically with marriage, and then everything else flows out from there in terms of sexual um, morality and the chastity that it calls us to. All right, so what are the duties required in the seventh commandment? Um, this is from the Westminster Larger Catechism, um, uh, written by men who knew how to write a sentence. The duties required in the seventh commandment are chastity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior. And chastity, of course, just means holiness, sexual holiness, right? Not just holiness generically, but in relationship to our sexuality in particular. Chastity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior. That kind of covers the gamut. 
and the preservation of it in ourselves and others. And that's something we're going to talk about in a little bit, the way in which the, the seventh commandment is not only about our own particular sexual choices and decisions and lusts, but actually it's about the community. And we actually, according to the writers of the catechism, have responsibility for other people's chastity, um, the preservation of their chastity as well. Uh, watchfulness over the eyes and all the senses. So you know, being careful what you look at, what you see, what you hear, um, all, the, all, the, all the senses. Temperance, keeping of chaste company. Again, that emphasis on the community um, that you're a part of, that this is a communal command. Modesty and apparel. Um, yeah, you know, the Westminster Larger Catechism goes there, right? I know that's become more of a... a um, uh, controversial topic in recent years, but modesty, they argue, um, in apparel, and how you dress is part of the seventh commandment, and I would affirm that. Uh, marriage by those that have not the gift of continency, and continency there refers to um, being able to control your um, sexual behavior, essentially, um, that you, you have you know, self-control over your thoughts, your affections, your actions sexually. So if you don't have that gift of self-control, um, the writers are saying that marriage is one of the duties required by the seventh commandment, um, which is actually kind of fascinating to think about. Um, conjugal love, which of course means um, the sexual intercourse in marriage. Is so having sex with your spouse is a way, is a duty, um, according to the writers of the catechism, um, um, to obey the seventh commandment and cohabitation. Um, so actually living with your spouse um, that you've entered into marriage covenant with is also a part of um, the seventh commandment. Um, not, not you know, trying to live, you know, might maybe there's some short-term deal where this makes sense, but, but basically they're saying you, you should live together <laughs> in the same home. Um, dil diligent labor in our callings, and uh, I think that specifically has to do with our callings in marriage and and, and and celibacy if we're um, unmarried, um, but generally, of course, has to do with diligent labor in all our callings. Um, shunning all occasions of uncleanness and resisting temptations thereunto. Um, so staying out of situations that um, will be tempting um, to in this regard, in regard um, of the seventh commandment. Any, any thoughts or questions about the duties before we look at the forbidden things? These are the positive things that we would say the seventh commandment requires. Do I think so? Um, I, 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 no, no, I think it's a fair question, James. I, I understand, yeah. I, and I, I'm very conscious today that I'm, as I'm talking about Seventh Commandment, I'm talking to people who are in all different kinds of situations, right? Um, that some of you are unmarried, um, some of you, you know, have different kind of histories in terms of marriage, um, and that's all part of the dynamic here. So do I think the Seventh Commandment requires this? Yeah, I mean, I do. Um, if you are not, if, if, a, if a man or a woman is not able to live a life of sexual holiness um, without sexual intercourse, um, without, 
the covenant of marriage, then yeah, I do think that marriage is something that is required. Um, that is, it's a, it's a God-given gift. Um, and it, it is a, of course, you know, marriage, I would not say that marriage um, fixes all of our sexual sin or satisfies all of our sexual desires. Um, that's certainly not true. But I do think that marriage is given to us as um, a gift from God that is uh, a kind of safe place for us sexually. And it's an accommodation um, to us in that way. And of course, this is what, you know, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, you know, let a man not burn, but be married. You know, that that's what they're drawing this, I mean, other places too, but that's an explicit kind of proof text. Now, of course, it's complicated because, you know, it takes two to get married, right? Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, so it, it's inherently complex because it requires not just your own volition, but the volition of someone else. And the two, you know, I, th- I think what I would encourage you to think about this, James, is, um, and just generally if you're an unmarried person um, reading this catechism question, I think, I think this speaks, one, to the sort of social context that we live in, that marriage is something that should be, I'm going to talk about this in a minute, should be honored and held up and encouraged um, as a, a, a norm in the Christian life, and we shouldn't be embarrassed to talk about it that way. Um, that it is, it is an appropriate um, desire and something that the church generally should encourage um, unmarried people to seek marriage, um, unless there's some particular reason why that is not the case. Um, and, and if you're an unmarried person and you don't think you have you know, the gift of continency, as you look at your own heart and your life and all those things, I think that I would say that marriage is something that I would encourage unmarried folks to pursue. Um, to be open to, um, to be courageous in terms of looking for a spouse, um, to try to um, order your life in such a way that you are prepared to enter into marriage um, when the Lord um, gives you someone who you, know, you can make vows with. Um, I think all of those things are things that we should be encouraging unmarried folks to do, um, to, to prepare for marriage, to anticipate marriage, to hope for marriage, um, all with the acknowledging the complexity of the Lord obviously doesn't give marriage to everyone. And um, that's, that's part of the deal. That's part of um, the difficulty of living in the world we live in, I think. Um, so I, I don't know if that helps at all. Yes. No, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. The, the I would say that the, the, the standards are not, you know, I mean, I think they are nuanced in some ways, but they're also pretty black and white in terms of the way they communicate. So I understand how that would come across. I'm Jeremy and then Barry, my father.
Yeah, and, and cultivating the virtues and the, the things that would be good for you when you enter into it. Yeah. No, you're not. And of course, as Paul talks about in First Corinthians seven, there's there are particular um, opportunities um, when you are unmarried um, to serve others, to serve the church, and that's part of um, what it means, I think, to be diligent about your calling. If you're an unmarried person, is to think about the ways in which the fact that you are not directly responsible for another human person in the same way that you would be if you were married, what does that free you to do in service to the people of God, in service to your neighbor, um, to use that, yeah to use that freedom. It, it's also worth noting um, that, remember that the, the context of the Westminster Confession of Faith and standards um, were a, a context in which the late medieval church had elevated celibacy and singleness um, as a virtue in and of itself over and above marriage. Um, this is, I'm gonna read a few quotes from Luther in a few minutes. Um, and he really, if, of course, if you know Luther, you know this is something that was a really big deal to him, right? That he wanted and to reformers generally. They wanted people, they, they felt as though the late medieval Roman Catholic Church had, had made married people feel like they weren't really being holy, essentially, because they were having all this sex, you know, um, essentially. Um, and that that was somehow lesser in God's eyes than being a monk or a nun or a priest. Um, and, and they really want to push back against that. And I think rightly so. I think rightly so. Um, that saying that that actually doesn't really fit with the, the storyline of the scriptures, you know, yes, allowance for, um, you know, singleness is made and, and there are some benefits that can be, um, you know, you can have if you're unmarried, but generally the story of the Bible is about story people being faithful to God in the context of marriage. Um, and certainly that's the expectation from Genesis, you know, one and two and, and following, and that this will be the normal practice of God's people to be merry and to be fruitful and multiply and dignify God in that way. Yeah, Dad. Yeah, which is why Jesus uses the language of eunuchs um, for the kingdom. He's probably not primarily talking about literal eunuchs there, but people who are putting to death their sexual desire um, for the sake of the kingdom. Yep. Yep. Okay, let's look at the uh, sins forbidden in the seventh commandment. The sins forbidden in the seventh commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, are adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, and all unnatural lusts, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections, all corrupt or filthy communications, 
or listening thereunto. I should say probably the distinction between unnatural lusts are things that are against the order of creation, like um, same-sex attractions and, and lusts, that kind of thing. Um, unclean imaginations are, are more you know, heterosexual um, lusts, essentially, that are unclean because they're not directed towards someone who you're in a relationship with in a marriage. Uh, thoughts, purposes, and affections, all corrupt or filthy communications or listening thereunto, um, which I think that that takes on a whole different meaning <laughs> right? in the age of the Internet. Um, they could not have imagined, I think, the capacity for um, corrupt and filthy communications that would exist um, you know, 400 years later um, in the world that we live in. Um, but even at that time, they were, they were um, desiring to prevent people from participating in those things. Or listening thereunto, wanton looks, which I think is fascinating, right? Even the way you you look at someone is, um, um, you know, the to look at someone in a suggestive way, to look at someone in a way that is desirous of them, um, in a in a in an inappropriate way, um, is prohibited by the seventh commandment. In pundit or light behavior, um, and here I think what they're talking about is just flirting in a way that is um, jokey and silly and you know it's not necessarily like you know um, explicitly you know promiscuous but it it's it's impundent it's not careful it's not respectful of the other person and their sexuality and their marriage covenant and your marriage covenant um, it's 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 not treating someone with that kind of respect and their their marriage um, relationship with that kind of respect immodest apparel um, so we're required to have modesty in apparel and prohibited from having immodest apparel. Um, prohibiting of lawful and dispensing with unlawful marriages. So telling someone they can't get married if they have a lawful marriage that's available to them. Or, um, or putting away with un unlawful marriages. Um, uh, allowing, tolerating, keeping of stews. Anybody know what that means? It's a very particular. Anybody know? It's talking about prostitution. Um, um, this is that's a to allowing, tolerating, keeping of stews. It's it's a obviously a colloquial um, term from the age, and it has to do with with bathhouses. Basically, um, you would go and stew in bathhouses, and um, they would they became at least in the context of Britain um, places where prostitution took place. Um, and so it says, don't allow them, don't tolerate, don't keep stews, um, don't. Don't have that be part of, or resort to them. Um, don't that be part of your culture or your life? Um, you know, and, and it, we can kind of chuckle about it, but you know, this is obviously something that our culture um, has. And and for many, you know, this actually, if you if you look at the um, the the shift, I mean, there's so many shifts that happened in the Roman Empire um, when it became Christian. But one of the shifts that happened was uh, prostitution was not considered um, unfaithfulness sexually um, if you were a Roman person. Um, you know, it was just sort of understood that, of course, every man had his mistress, you know, would go to the brothel, would, you know, that was, nobody cared. You know, it was just not a big deal. Um, it was just part of how things functioned and how it worked. Um, and, of course, this so this is one of, so one of the biggest changes that you knew that Christianity had really begun to infiltrate the Roman Empire was in the fourth century when prostitution became illegal, became a crime. 
um, to participate, and not only for the women, but for the men um, who would participate in it, um, who would use prostitutes, um, that it became a crime for both those parties. That was a massive shift in terms of the ancient world. I mean, you know, people joke about, of course, prostitution being the, um, the oldest, you know, um, uh, employment, right, the, the oldest kind of job that exists. And there's a reason they, they talk about that, because it's, it's a deeply... Um, something that's connected deeply to sort of pagan culture and society and and Christianity pushes against that and says no um, to that entangling vows of single life and so here they're talking specifically about vows of celibacy in the context of the church um, that's they were concerned about that did not uh, want those vows to be held up as being uh, so they're not saying it's wrong for you to be single they're saying it's wrong for you to be um, publicly vow that you'll never get married, that you'll never um, be open to that. Undue delay of marriage, and this, I think, speaks to some of the nuance you're talking about, James. So the, the concern that they're wanting there is, is not just that people get married, but that they not unduly delay marriage, that they are not putting marriage off um, in a specific way. They're not open to it. Um, having more wives or husbands than one at the same time. Um, unjust divorce or desertion. So it's important to say divorce and desertion are violations of the seventh commandment. Um, if there, you know, there are biblical reasons for divorce, but any unbiblical divorce or desertion. Idleness, gluttony, drunkenness, unchaste company, um, all things that open us up to sexual sin. Um, lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancing, stage plays, and we might add today um, film, right, video, as an obvious um, sort of parallel to those things um, that exist in our day and age, and all other provocations to or acts of uncleanness, either in ourselves or in others. And again, that, that note again about the sort of communal nature of this command. Um, I've only got about 20 minutes left, so I'm probably just going to keep rolling, um, unless there's a burning question that you just don't understand something in this, the, the prohibitions here. Okay, great. Um, so the seventh commandment, first and foremost, has to do with the honor, preservation, and protection of marriage. Um, and this is, you know, just uh, I've quoted a few passages here. Um, Hebrews, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. I think one of the things to, to underscore there is the way in which that is a command that's not only given to married people, but to the whole community. Right, and Hebrews wants everyone to honor marriage, um, to uphold it, to protect it. Um, that you have responsibility. The idea is not only um, for your own marriage, but for the marriages of other people. And just generally, you should honor marriage as an appropriate calling and way of life, um, so that the marriage bed will be undefiled. And that's a good way to think about. You need to think about the marriages in our church. That the the marriage beds that those men and women share and their marriages are holy places and they should not be defiled and they, no one else should be a part of that in some way not just literally of course but figuratively um, those should be hidden places secret places even in some sense um, that are shared between the husband and wife alone and others should not be intruding into those places um, and that's something for us really to wrestle with and think about what does it mean for us to be the kind of community that that honors marriage and that and does not defile the marriage beds of those um, who are part of that community. Uh, Malachi 2.15 is really interesting. Uh, he's talking about why um, unjust divorces can't take place um, through the prophet Malachi, last book in the Old Testament. 
And Malachi says, did the Lord not make them one, meaning a husband and a wife, with a portion of the spirit in their union? Which is a fascinating concept, right, to think about, that somehow in the union between a man and a woman in marriage, that the Holy Spirit actually binds them together in some mystical, um, secret, mysterious way. Um, that, that God himself um, is binding them into one. The one flesh union is not just about um, sexual intercourse, it's also about the spirit in some ways, in some way uniting them together. Um, and what was the one God seeking? And so it's interesting, he talked about how the spirit makes husband and wife one, and then he immediately talks about the one God, right? Um, so the, the oneness of God is supposed to be connected to the oneness of the man and the woman, um, which of course, you know, you, you start thinking about the Trinity and all those sorts of things, the way that the Father and the Son indwell one another and share communion with each other while being also differentiated into different persons, but also one. And you get an idea of how marriage is supposed to work um, as well. Um, so guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Um, so there's, there's this connection between the faithfulness of marriages and the faithfulness of God. It's supposed to be a picture of that covenant communion and fidelity. Um, then Genesis 2, of course, um, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man while he slept. He took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So there's a recognition and acknowledgement that Adam has, the man has. He sees Eve. He says, she is different from me and yet she's also connected to me. There's also the, there's this differentiation with while also this union um, between um, the two persons, which is central um, to our understanding of marriage. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Of course, that's what woman means literally in the Hebrew. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This is the commentary um, by Moses, or I think actually probably by Adam. Um, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife are both naked and not ashamed. Um, so there's this picture of marriage means breaking away from your family, your, your natural family, um, the parents that you grew up with, and leaving them, um, not just physically, but leaving them in terms of your ultimate loyalty, in terms of your um, emotional dependence, in terms of your um, all of those things. Bra- it, it's the creation of something new. You're breaking off from your family of origin in a significant way, and you're entering into a new one flesh union with someone who is also breaking off and leaving their um, natural life, their uh, previous life, so that you can start something new. Every marriage has to be a new thing. And I'll just tell you, as someone who has worked with a lot of marriages in the last 13 years, this is a big deal, right? Um, the extent to which people are able to do this in healthy ways, um, to to separate from their mother and their father and cleave um, to their spouse and start something new is so fundamental um, to um, what God, to health in a marriage, um, to to the kind of union that can exist between a husband and wife that requires an appropriate kind of breaking off of um, that relationship with the parents. Um, And of course, I'm not, the fifth commandment still exists, honor your father and mother, all those things, but, but, there is a kind of ultimate loyal, an ordering of loyalties that has to change um, in a fundamental way in order for marriage to be what it's supposed to be. Um, so, and then Ephesians 5, of course, compares marriage to um, the relationship between Christ and the church. 
Um, it's a sign of what precedes marriage, right? Marriage is not, you know, God's covenant faithfulness and fidelity and union with his people is first, and then marriage becomes a picture of that, a sign of that to the world. Um, your marriage is actually a sign of God's union with his people, especially the union between the Son of God and his bride, um, which is profound, as Paul says. So the seventh commandment means that we must reckon with the holiness and significance of the marital vocation for ourselves and for the whole community we're a part of. Marriage is a calling. I want us to see this, um, that we're, we're invited into, we're called into. It's something that is set on us. It's, it's something, once you get married, that you will define the rest of your life is, is your fidelity to this calling that God has given you, um, which is why we have the kind of vows that we have. Will you have this woman to be your wife, to live together in the covenant of marriage? Will you love her, comfort her, honor her, keep her? In sickness, so put her above anyone else is what you're saying there, right? And then no matter what the circumstances, right? Sickness and health and forsaking all others, right? And that has to do with specifically the seventh commandment, forsaking everyone else, um, other potential spouses, other men, other women, um, even in some degree your, your family, um, forsaking all others, um, will you uh, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? And that's the kind of intention of marriage that happens at the beginning of a traditional marriage service. And then the actual vows, I take you to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and cherish until death do us part. This is my solemn vow before God. So it really is, a the married life is a vowed life. Um, it is a life that is protected by public promises um, in front of witnesses um, that you can be held to account to. And I think that's really crucial um, for us to think about when we think about marriage. There's a reason why the church has done this. And it's important to say that the scriptures don't require or even give specific examples of these kinds of vows in marriage. But I think the church has rightly developed and, and, and upheld marriage, protected marriage, um, by these kinds of public vows that we see here, right? Um, the Thomas Cramner didn't you know, copy this out of, I don't know, Romans or something. Um, but he did take wise application, I think, of scriptural principles, including the seventh commandment, and codify them in vows that have become typical for at least the English church. Um, so th there are all these sort of um, quotes here um, from Lightheart. Um, he talks about um, sex is created as a sign of God's love for his bride. That's what it is for. And that's why Paul quotes from Genesis 2, the great mystery is that God created man, male, and female, a differentiated unity and a unified differentiation as a living sign of his covenant bond with his people. Once we see marriage and adultery in this theological perspective, the do nots fall into place. All are rooted in the fundamental do, right? The do precedes the do nots. Be what you are as male and female, and as a married husband and wife, be the living image of the God of creation and covenant. And I do think this is true, that there is something important about marriage, man and woman together, and that covenant bond reflects the image of God more fully and more gloriously than they would individually and alone. Um, this is part of the holy calling of marriage, is um, that you reflect the person of God in a particular way. Um, as you keep your vows, as you love and cherish and honor one another, as you forsake all others. Um, sexual faithfulness, Lightheart says, preaches the gospel, which is deeply true. Um, when you think about marriages that last for 50, 60, 70 years and are faithful, like those relationships preach the gospel in a profound way. 
Um, and I think it's something for all of us, especially those who are married, to think about, like to want that, right? To want that testimony to the gospel um, to be fundamental for um, our lives, to want that. That should be a goal for us when we go into marriage. People get married for all sorts of reasons, right? Um, so maybe when you're 22 or whatever, you're not thinking about that. But hopefully at some point you start saying, this is why I want to be married, right? I want to I want to die one day after being married for 50 years or whatever faithfully to my spouse and for that to be a living sign of the goodness of God and fidelity of Christ to his people. Um, it's a beautiful thing. Um, when a husband and wife are faithful to one another sexually and otherwise, they become a created symbol of the covenant God who keeps his vow to Israel and the new Israel. By keeping the seventh word, we dramatize the good news of Jesus the bridegroom of the church who gives himself an utter fidelity to and for his bride. Um, sexual intimacy within marriage must be guarded and maintained because it is a living sign of God's covenant union with us. That is the primary purpose of the seventh commandment. And we, we already talked about the way in which marriage needs to be honored and upheld, and um, we addressed that earlier. So I would also say the second point, the seventh commandment teaches the horror also of both adultery and unbiblical divorce, um, which, you know, there are sorts of ways we violate the seventh commandment, but adultery and unbiblical divorce are the two primary um, you know, ways that we really tear at um, the seventh commandment. We really tear at this living sign that our marriages are supposed to be of God and his love for his people to the world and to our neighbors. And so I just wanted to say, um, let's be a community that avoids these things because it is so essential to our health um, as a people, um, that keeping your marriage vows is actually a way of loving your neighbor, because if you participate in the sin of adultery yourself, um, you will destroy not only your spouse and your children, but also um, your neighbors and your friends. And anyone I think who has been around adultery knows this, has sensed this, has felt it. And the same is true with unbiblical divorce. Um, like if you discard your spouse, um, it will bring ruin on not only your children and your own life and your spouse's life, but around on your neighbors and those around you too. Like this, it is a really, like when you, we just kind of get married and I know this is how it works, right? You know, when you're young, I was the same way, but man, you're like getting into like, like your decisions just become way more consequential if you dare to take marriage vows. Um, so this is why um, Cramner also wrote this words in italics here at the bottom. Therefore, merit of that point, second point, therefore marriage is not to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, or but reverently, deliberately, and in accordance with the purposes with which it is instituted by God. Like that's something that I say in every marriage service. Um, and I don't know that, you know, the bride and the groom are always listening real closely. Um, you know, they're just excited, right? Um, but man, you know, we got to hear that. Um, so this is so this is a sign of how significant adultery is is the fact that it is one of the only two permissible reasons in the scriptures given for divorce, right? That it, it sh that's why it, it it's okay to divorce your spouse if they are unfaithful with you sexually because adultery is such a big deal because it really does tear at the. Um, the fundamental relationship between husband and wife. Um, 
it destroys a marriage in a fundamental way. One unbelieving writer, um, marriage therapist, puts it this way. She says, once an affair has occurred, the marriage is, and I would say this fits with my anecdotal um, you know, ministry to situations that include affairs and adultery. Once an affair has occurred, the marriage is over. It's possible to heal and renew and begin again, but the first marriage is over. And I think there's some truth to that, that, that in order for a, sp- a couple to survive an affair, to survive adultery, um, they have to re-up. They have to, you know, it has to be true repentance and restoration and forgiveness and even a kind of taking again, figuratively at least, of the marriage vows to one another because adultery just tears at the fundamental basis of marriage in a, in a deep way. This is also why unbiblical divorce is such a terrible sin, because it tears apart something that God himself has united, that the Spirit has made one. Um, and so you cannot, you know, people do it all the time, I understand, right? It's both of those things, right? This is one of the deep problems in our culture is the, the regularity with which adultery and unbiblical divorce take place. Um, but it's just, you know, it just destroys people. Um, it really does. Um, and, and unbiblical divorce destroys um, the covenant sign that marriage is supposed to be in a way that we need to really um, take seriously. You should remember that the punishment in the Old Testament law for adultery was death for both of the guilty parties. That's something to think about. That wasn't true for all sexual sin, right? If you had you know, what we call premarital sex, um, death was not the outcome. Usually you're encouraged to get married, actually. It's interesting. Um, but not for adultery. If you violated a marriage bed um, or you violated your own marriage bed, death was the penalty um, because it was so serious. It was seen to be so destructive to the community. Um, and then finally, just say the seventh commandment lays the foundation for a community where our nakedness and the nakedness of others is respected and reserved for disclosure only in the covenant of marriage. Um, I've already noted this, but just so much of the, the teaching of the catechism regarding the seventh commandment have to do with communal activities and behaviors. And I think that's something for us really to wrestle with, um, that keeping the seventh commandment means accepting responsibility for other people's sexual holiness and seeing our own sexual holiness as dependent upon them as well. And as we think about the church community, this is part of what it means to be a church community, is to own one another's sexual holiness um, and to protect it and to guard it and to encourage it. Um, I have on this back page, um, the seventh commandment requires that we do not transgress sexual boundaries reserved for marriage in relationship to other people, and we do all we can to keep others from transgressing those boundaries as well, um, which is really important to think about. Um, Preserving chastity, I say, in ourselves and in others includes a lot of things, and we should really think about what the Catechism says here. It includes how we speak to one another, right? The words we choose, the tone of voice we use, um, just the the language that we we have, how we joke with one another. um, That's part of keeping the seventh commandment. Um, uh, sorry, I lost my place there. Uh, how we look at one another. I mean, that's, you know, that, that's intrusive, right? But it says that's part of it, like how we actually look at one another, um, both in terms of the way that our gaze falls on other people and the ways in which we invite them to look at us. Um, both, you know, that kind of visual communication that happens even from 
you know, when eyes meet across a room is part of the seventh commandment. It's a big part of it. Um, how we dress in front of each other, and I'll just go ahead and say it. I think that modesty is a thing that we need to be aware of and think about, um, particularly if we're married. Uh, modesty is a thing, um, and we need to be conscious of that, that we are reserving our bodies in a fundamental way for our spouse, um, including the way that we dress. Um, and, uh, you know, I understand there can be all sorts of crazy applications about this that I'm not encouraging, um, but I do think we should not in any way throw modesty out the window and say, I don't, so I think sometimes one of the critiques about modesty today is it says, well, well that you're implying that, that I have responsibility for other people's lust. Yeah, I'm, I'm implying that, friends. Yes, that's exactly, yeah, like, because I think the scriptures teach that, and clearly our standards teach that, that you have responsibility for other people's lust. Yes, you do. I'm not saying you, you have ultimate responsibility or they're not responsible. Yes, they're responsible. They're more responsible than you are. Yes, all yes, yes. But do you have responsibility for other people's sexual holiness? Yes, you do, absolutely. How I mean, imagine the chaos if we didn't, you know? Like, we need each other. Um, even how we think about and imagine one another is covered in terms of, you know, this idea of the, the communal corporate nature of sexual holiness. Um so finally, I'll close with this, a note on pornography. So sometimes we can act as though viewing pornography is primarily wrong because it violates our relationship with God or perhaps our relationship with our spouse, right? Um, and so therefore we should avoid pornography and be sorry and repent when we do it. But what I want us to see, friends, is what is often overlooked is that pornography is a violation of God's law because there's a man or a woman on the other end who's made in God's image too that exists and that if you view their nakedness you are uncovering their nakedness in a way that is forms an attachment with them um, that is adulterous in and of itself and it is damaging to both them and you um, I mean just think I mean, like that person whose nakedness you're looking on they might even be a baptized brother or sister in Jesus right and you are transgressing this uncovering their nakedness in a way um, that is deeply harmful. And believe me, right, if you have done any research into how pornography is produced and consumed in our world today, I mean, it just destroys the people that get caught up in it, right? Um, it marks the rest of their lives is marked by the fact that these pictures exist and will never be collected and destroyed um, because they just exist forever now. And just... So I, I really think when we think about pornography, we really need to move beyond just thinking about it in terms of our relationship to God and our relationship to our spouse, but really think about the damage that it does corporately to the community, um, including the people who are caught up in it. Um, and and we sh let us, let's not do that. Let's put that away. Let's put that to death. If you want to talk about pornography, friends, I will listen. I, I'll just say this about sexual. I very seriously doubt that you will be able to shock me with whatever you think that your terrible sexual sin is. Like, I very much doubt it. Because you do this for, you know, almost 15 years, full-time ministry, and you, like the gamut, like you're just a person. You're just a sexual sinner like every other person. I'm a sexual sinner. I've heard a lot of sexual sin. Um, you're not going to shock me. Um, come and talk about these things. Don't be enslaved by shame and secrecy and guilt. Pursue repentance. There is a better way to live. Um, 
and God is offering that to you in Christ. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for these words of the seventh commandment. Give us wisdom as we reflect upon it. Help us to pursue holiness for our own sake and for the sake of one another. Um, Give us freedom from shame, Father. Let us put away the works of darkness and walk in the light together. Um, Let us honor our marriage and let our marriage beds and our congregation be undefiled. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.